This is episode number 106 with New York Times bestselling author Mark Manson. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. When you say, to love myself, I need to do X, Y, Z. I need to lose 10 pounds. I need to make X amount of dollars. I need to get married, have a kid. When you set out those conditions for yourself, you are now having a transactional relationship with yourself. And like I said earlier, everything icky in life originates in these kind of transactional motivations. I'm stoked you guys are here, and I think you're going to love this week's episode. Just to give you guys a quick heads up, there are some curse words in this episode because the book title has the F word in it. So if there's somebody listening that would be offended, or maybe your kids are listening in the car, just giving you a quick heads up before I get into it. Mark Manson is a New York Times bestselling author, blogger, and entrepreneur. And you may have seen his first bright orange book, The Subtle Art of Giving a Fuck. It sold nearly 8 million copies so far and has been number one in 13 countries. It's pretty much one of the most successful books in the last five years. Mark is about effective self-help and his demeanor is really funny and humble. Mark has written for CNN, BBC News, Business Insider, and is even writing books for Will Ferrell and Will Smith. It's pretty crazy how much success he has realized. So in this episode, we talked about how he started his blog in 2007 and how it has blown up to helping literally millions of people. It's amazing how so many of these guests have either started a product or a service or written a book or just started a blog because they were interested in it. And it's amazing what happens whenever you just start doing something that you think is meaningful and how so many guests that I've had on the show have created massive businesses, or just massive impacts in the world by just doing something they love. This episode is all about his new book that just launched this week, Everything is Fucked. The book goes into why, despite living in one of the greatest time periods in history, we still feel like we aren't enough, that things are super hard, and we sometimes feel isolated. Sound familiar? And at this moment in history, when we have so much access to technology, the internet, any type of education and communication with the click of a button or a tap of a phone, we still feel helpless, hopeless, and alone at times. So diving into research and stories about great philosophers, Mark dissects our relationships with money, entertainment, the internet, and how too much of a good thing can actually psychologically eat us alive. We also talk about how hope can be a bad thing, the best kind of self-help, a little bit about his last book, The Subtle Art of Giving a Fuck, how success and achieving your dreams can be different than what you thought, and specifically about how the success of Mark's last book messed with him and where happiness actually comes from. I'm super excited about this episode with Mark, but I first want to just say thank you to our podcast sponsor, Kuat Racks. That's K-U-A-T racks.com. They make the most innovative outdoor racks on the planet, and they recently bridged from doing just bikes to outdoor equipment. So if you're one of those people where I point and say, those people look cool because they have a kayak on their car and bikes and all kinds of stuff, and they're going camping, 
Kuat can outfit you for the entire weekend. And I personally use the Sherpa rack. It's a two tray bike rack that goes on the hitch of your car and it's really easy to use. And I just love their racks. So check them out. KuatRacks.com, K-U-A-T racks.com. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it. And so would Mark, if you could take a screenshot of the episode or just do an Instagram story on the most important things you learned and tag us on Instagram. It makes a big difference just to share the story with your friends and also just to help Mark get his book out there because he's impacted so many people in such a positive way. And if you're also enjoying the show and would like to support my work financially with only a couple of dollars a month, it's the same as buying a latte. You can go to patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show, kick in a couple of bucks and it'll help the show continue to grow and improve and sound even better. All right, guys, I bring to you the awesome Mark Manson. Mark Manson, it's such an honor to get to talk to you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, I've been a fan of your work for a while. And I actually remember the first time I read The Subtle Art of Giving a Fuck. I was actually on a camping trip sitting by a lake reading it saying like, this is awesome. And I love the title. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the title has done wonders. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you actually about the title because I had another guest on. It was called, their book was called The Brave Athlete, Calm the Fuck Down. And they actually uh -huh. received some flack about their title. So how did you come up with the title and or of both of your books? Because they both have the F word in it. Well, so I, I just write, I've been blogging for about 10 years. And the beautiful thing about a blog is you can just say whatever the, the hell you want and nobody can like, there's no editor or publisher or corporate person to like tell you, nope, nope, can't do that. So I, I would drop the F bomb into titles and, and a few of them, became huge hits. And so it was funny because I actually went to my publisher with the book proposal and it originally wasn't called that. I don't remember what we called it, but it, it didn't have the F word in it. And then the publisher was actually the one who was like, can we put an F bomb in there? Like, Dang. like all right, <laughs> sure. Why not? <laughs> so the rest is history. Yeah. It's funny. I actually designed these socks it was probably six, seven, maybe even eight years ago now. And it was, they say do epic shit. And at the yeah. time, the sock designer or the sock company was like, we can't put a curse word on a sock. I'm like, yeah, you should do it. And now it's like one of their top selling socks. So cuss words sell. <laughs> <laughs> they do. I don't know. I don't know what that says about the period we live in, but uh, it works, right? Yeah. So like you mentioned that you started a blog and I read that you've traveled to over 60 countries. So like, how did you monetize this business and how did you decide to make it a business? Because oftentimes we just start writing a blog for fun. Well, I initially started writing it for fun. So I graduated college in 2007. And I always joke that I, I graduated just in time to watch the economy collapse. And uh, worst job market in 80 years. <laughs> As soon as like handed your diploma and then it's like, good luck, worst job market in 80 years. So I couldn't find a job. And I had some friends who were just doing some websites and web design and things like that. And, and I, I started kind of doing some projects with them. And I read Tim Ferriss's 4-Hour Workweek. And for those who aren't familiar with it, it's it's basically, it's an old book kind of written. It's like one of the original, you know, build a business online and chase your dreams. You know, it's easier than you think type books. And um, he talked about how like, yeah, if you can build a website, you can work from anywhere. You can go live in any country in the world. And actually, because of how countries develop, like sometimes you can have a first world level of living for like half the price that you pay in the US. 
And so as a adventurous 20 something that like sounded like the perfect life. So yeah, I built a bunch of websites and then started traveling around the world. And originally the blogging was just for fun. It was just to kind of like keep my friends updated about what, what I was doing and crazy, stupid stuff, stupid stuff, 25 year olds do, you know, (laughs) drinking too much, stuff like that. And it, it, for whatever reason, strangers started to read it. And I started getting kind of introspective about my dating life and my relationships and, you know, what it was like living in different places. And, and slowly over the course of years, I ended up with tons and tons of readers And I think it was in 2010 that I was like, you know what? I think I'll try to make this my full-time gig. And it worked. So here I am. (laughs) That's so cool. And I think like just the vulnerability of blogging, like I also started as a blogger on the side and just like people want to feel like they belong and that they're not alone. And I think that it's so powerful to be able to put that out there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You realize that your issues are like not unique at all. (laughs) So a lot of your topics are about how to be better. I hate the term Mm -hmm. self-help, but we have to use it. So sure. But you know, you're writing, there's a big difference between conventional self-help and inspiring quotes and, and just visualizing yourself being better and then actual effective self-help. So how have you been able to drive a stake down the middle of that and provide advice that actually matters? I think, so I'm like a recovered self-help junkie and I hate the term too, but I think just these days there's so much cheesy stuff associated with it. But, you know, I I started reading self-help stuff when I was a teenager and got really into it and went to some seminars and watched videos and all this stuff. And, um, you know, I think I became disillusioned with it by the time I I approached 30. And uh, I started to realize that, you know, a lot of it is very good. There's a lot of really good advice in it. And then there's a lot of stuff that I think is a little bit misguided or at least – maybe shallow or superficial. And then there's some bullshit thrown in. So I just really, a lot of it just came from experience. And then once I started writing seriously about it, you know, I, I did a lot of academic research and like psychology and, you know, human happiness and emotional well-being and things like that. And you eventually kind of learn how to like pick and choose the, the stuff that is decent and works and and then what what kind of doesn't or what usually what you find in self-help is the bad stuff. It's not it's not that it's just like made up. Usually it's like it's because it's marketing gimmicks. And so you, you learn how to like leave that behind and and just take what's best from it. And move on. Yeah. And I kind of feel like yours is like self-help for the skeptics, for the people who like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I I used to tell people, I think actually when I was pitching my book, to publishers, I said it's a self-help book for people who hate self-help. And it's funny now because now I do, I do now that I'm like Mr. Big Bestseller, a lot of interviewers ask me if I'm a guru and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, if I'm a self-help guru. And so I, I tell my, I say I'm a self-hating self-help guru, which I love because it's the last thing a self-help guru is supposed to be is self-hating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I wanted to ask you about how you went from writing articles to writing books, because I'm trying to write my own book right now. And the creative process is really hard from writing like a 2000 word article to suddenly having this massive book you're trying to write. It's a bitch. (laughs) It's, It's like, it's, it's a nightmare. You know, I think ideas have natural, different natural lengths. Like, I think we've all read those 
I think business books are kind of the worst culprit of this. Like we've all read that book that it's, it's a great idea for like 20 pages and then it just repeats those 20 pages, <laughs> you know, for yeah. another 200. And, you know, I think some ideas are worth 20 pages. Some ideas are worth 50. Some are worth 100. Some are worth 1,000. And it, it's really hard to find like a good 200 to 300 page idea. Like you, you have to work really hard at it. And the thing is, the really unfortunate thing is that you usually don't know if it's a 200 page idea until you've written about 20 or 30 pages of it. So both with Subtle Art and then I, I've got another book coming out in a couple months. It wasn't my first idea that ended up being the book. It was like my third or fourth idea. So you, you start writing, you get like 30 pages into it, you hit a wall, everything sounds awful. And then you realize that this little thing on page 21 was like, oh, actually, that's like really smart. Like I thought that was just going to be a section, but actually that could be a chapter. And then so you, you just like you start writing that out and then it turns out that that needs more than one chapter. And it's it's almost like uh, you're like excavating, you know, like you don't know what you're going to find down there, but it's you need to write to like see what it's going to be, which is it can suck sometimes because I think just as humans, we want to know what we're getting into. We want to know when it's going to be done. We want to be able to like mark on our calendar, like, you know, finish my book. And it, it just doesn't work that way. So many of the listeners are familiar with the subtle art, but for the people that aren't familiar, can you give a quick synopsis of the book? Sure. So basically the the whole subtle art, not giving a fuck. It's, uh, it's a way to like trick people to think about their values. So, you know, I think people buy the book because they're like, oh, I don't want to give a fuck. Like, I'm super stressed. But what they discover by like page 10 is that, you know, you have to give a fuck about something. And if you're really struggling or upset in your life, it's because you're giving a fuck about the wrong things. And so it's not about not giving a fuck. It's about learning how to give a fuck about the right things. And that essentially boils down to values. What are you choosing to value in your life? How are you defining success for yourself? You know, what are you willing to give up to get there? And I think those are all kind of difficult questions that you don't hear a whole lot. You know, we hear a lot about success and how to be more successful and make more money and this and that. But nobody stops to ask, like, what is success? You know, it's uh, I think everybody just assumes that, you know, going out and making like 10 million bucks is like that's worth it. Well, it depends what you have to give up to get that 10 million bucks you know, it might not be worth it at all. It might, it might make you way worse off than when you started. And so the book really just investigates all of those kind of hidden questions behind our assumptions. Yeah. And uh, core values is such a, like a buzzword these days, but I mean, I think it's important for us to sit there and to spend the time to slow down, to realize what is important and then make our decisions based on that because it's so easy. And I I'm guilty of this too. It's like I get swept along by making choices without looking back to say, okay, what is actually important? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think in this day and age too, when we have so much information and so much distraction, this question of values, like what are you going to choose to pay attention to? What are you going to choose to focus on? Like, I think it's more important than ever. And uh, I think that's probably why the book has done so well. Yeah. And also the orange cover, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> our, our traffic cone orange. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk about your new book, which is coming out. Is it May 10th that's coming out? May 14th. May 14th. Okay. Yeah. This yep. podcast, I, I have it set to come out like the day after your book comes out. 
So okay. I'll, make sure I get the, I'll make sure I get the date right. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so it's about giving up on hope. And can you talk about like the title and because it sounds very controversial whenever you tell, say to people like, okay, you got to give up on hope. <laughs> it's definitely not a it's not a selling point you hear very often. So the book is called Everything is Fucked, a book about hope. And uh the starting point is kind of we live in a very strange time in that if you look at all the material, like the the statistics of of how the world is doing materially, it's today is the best time to live in history. I know a lot of people like they have they struggle to believe that, but it's if you look at all the data, it's true. You know, so it's we're wealthier, we're healthier, we're living longer, we're curing diseases, there's less violence, less war, more literacy, more education. Like it's just on almost every single metric, like the world is better than it has been in previous years. Yet everybody is losing their damn minds. Like people are, you know, if you're like me and you spend too much time on Twitter, like you would think that the apocalypse is coming. And what's crazy too is that that it's not, you know, people on the left are freaking out, people on the right are freaking out, rich people are freaking out, poor people are freaking out. You said you just moved to Canada. Like it, it's all these different countries. It's not an American thing. It's there's just kind of this hysteria that's engulfing the world. And it's uh, a lot of it, I think, is it's not imagined, but it, it's kind of being exaggerated in people's minds. And kind of the same way I used the whole not giving a fuck thing that kind of tricked the reader into <laughs> reading about their values. The book about hope is I'm using the idea of hope to kind of trick people into hearing what I think they need to hear. Because I think everybody right now is looking for some sense of hope. They want somebody to tell them that, hey, things are going to get better. You know, we're the good guys and we're winning. And my whole argument in the book is that that is part of the problem. This whole idea that we're the good guys and we're winning and we've got the right answer. And hey, there's hope. So hang in there. Keep fighting. That's actually what's making everything worse or making everything appear to be worse than it is. So yeah, it's a fun, cheery <laughs> investigation <laughs> into uh, pop culture, politics, and uh, the internet. So <laughs> check it out. <laughs> yeah, in the back of the book, there's like so many references that you had. And also, I like how some of them was actually like an entire page of just other thoughts that you had on the topic. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you find all these all these references and how do you decide what to pick to put in the book? Well, I do a lot of research myself and then I have, you know, one of the benefits of Subtle Art being so successful is I, I have a research assistant now. So I've got a, a guy with a PhD who works for me and if I need the data on something, he'll, he'll like go find it. So that's nice. But it, it's something that I kind of regret not doing for Subtle Art. I think Subtle Art, it's a very easy read and it's a lot of fun, but I don't think a lot of people realize how much research and reading kind of went into it. And I get that question all the time. People are like, okay, well, your book was a lot of fun, but like, is there actually data on this? And, uh, and I, get, I would get kind of annoyed. I'm like, yeah, there's actually tons of data. So with this book, I wanted to, I don't know, I guess it's weird. I think when you write nonfiction, like having endnotes is like street cred, you know? It's like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, can I cuss? Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. So it's it's being like, yeah, motherfucker, I did my research. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, like, I went through the book, and you said to maintain hope, we have to believe in the value of something, have a sense of control, and community. So, could you talk about those three elements? So, kind of the the core argument around hope is that our psychology to kind of maintain ourselves psychologically, we need to have this clear vision of what a better future looks like. Because if you don't have that vision, then it's like, why get up in the morning? So that vision of the future is kind of our hope, what I call a hope narrative. And um, to maintain that or to have it in the first place, we have to, A, we have to value something. So we have to decide something is important. You know, so it, it could be something as simple like, you know, you said you're a professional mountain bike racer. Like it's something as simple as like, I want to win this race. You know, it like that's a vision of the future that can give you hope. It gets you up in the morning. You're like, hell yeah, let's go. Let's chase this reality. And it gets you to work. It can be something as abstract or complicated as like a religion or uh, love for a family member or, or whatever. But that's the first thing is you have to value something. Something needs to feel or seem important to you. The second thing is that you need self-control. So you need to believe that you can achieve that vision. So if you're, you know, if you want to win a mountain bike race and you don't have any legs, like that actually, that presents a problem. Like you can't see how you're going to get to that goal or that achievement, you know, so then it's, you lose hope. Or if like my big vision is I want to uh, own a small fleet of jet skis, but I don't have any money, then that destroys my vision of hope. So there needs to be some clear, like realistic path. And then the third thing is that we need a community. So we need other people that share our vision of what we find important. And these, these three things, they're, they're kind of, they're what sustain us. They're what give our life a sense of meaning. If you lose any three of them, it, you lose the other two. So if you lose a community, if you're the only one who finds your thing to be important, then you just start to feel like a crazy person. If you lose control over your, over your life, if you have this vision of hope, but you, you don't have enough control to get yourself there, then that steals the meaning away from your life. And then if you don't value anything in the first place, then yeah, you're, uh, you're stuck in bed. So that's kind of like, the psychological framework that I build to kind of explain everything else that's going on inside ourselves and in the world today. Yeah, because like in part of the book, you say give up on hope or like you look at Kant's formula of humanity, not relying on hope. And then there's other parts where you say, well, you should have hope, but this is how. But you also mentioned like hope is transactional and like that's the kind of hope that we shouldn't have. So can you talk about examples of what transactional hope looks like and how that contrasts from your, the definition we just discussed? Sure. So one thing I, I, I point out in the book is that hope is like any kind of psychological construct. It, it's like love or confidence. Like you can have a healthy form of confidence and you can have an unhealthy form of confidence. You can have a healthy form of love for somebody and you can have an unhealthy form of love for somebody. And, and it's the same thing with hope. You can have a very unhealthy vision of hope and you can have a healthy vision of hope. And um, the argument I make, the kind of the way I define what a healthy vision of hope looks like is that it's a vision of hope fundamentally based on people, on helping people, making your actions revolve around people, either yourself or others. And sadly, like what a lot of what happens in the world is that it, a lot of people out there base their actions and their motivations on what I call transactions. So it's instead of approaching somebody 
and thinking, you know, I want to learn about this person or I care about this person, they instead of approach an interaction thinking, what do I have to say to get what I want in return? It's like this tit for tat type thing. A really simple example is like dating. You know, it's like there's two types of people in the world. There are people who go on dates and they're like, all right, I'm just going to show up and hopefully things go well. And if they don't go well, they're like, well, I guess we're not compatible. And then they go home. But then there's another type of person who's like agonizing over what's the right thing to say. Oh, no, I shouldn't have ordered the enchiladas. Now I look sloppy. Like it's all their actions are not based on their own thoughts and desires. All their actions are based on trying to get something in return. And that's transactional. And transactional motivations always lead us to bad places. And so that that's another thread that I kind of weave through this whole psychological mess <laughs> that I talk about. <laughs> yeah, and I, I love that you talked about like focusing on the potential for growth and improvement and how you navigate to get there. But mm-hmm. a, a thing that I struggle with that I actually wanted to ask my uh, self-loathing, self-help guru <laughs> <laughs> is... Like you can get so caught up on growth and improvement that yeah. you actually sometimes end up feeling like you're not enough. And this is like, you also talk about the paradox of chasing happiness. And I, I kind of feel like sure. this can overlap. So it's like, oh, I got to be better. I got to learn more. or I, I got to be more self-aware. And then you start feeling like the opposite of that and you burn yourself yep. out. So how do you avoid doing that? It is a weird sort of paradox of like to be satisfied with your life you need to not want to change. But people want to change and become satisfied with their life. So it's like this weird kind of paradoxical self-defeating thing. And you, you see this a lot. I see this a lot, you know, in, in kind of the the self-help world where you, you actually get self-help junkies where it's like they want to change themselves, but because they want to change themselves so badly, it makes them feel worse about themselves, which just, then just makes them want to change themselves even more. And you you just get into this vicious cycle. It's actually interesting because viewing yourself this way is what I was just saying. It's transactional. When you say, to love myself, I need to do X, Y, Z. I need to lose 10 pounds. I need to make X amount of dollars. I need to get married, have a kid. When you set out those conditions for yourself, you are now having a transactional relationship with yourself. And like I said earlier, it's like everything icky in life originates in these kind of transactional motivations. The piece of advice I give is to just stop even thinking about the self, period. I come from kind of a Buddhist background, which is this idea of no self, of, of like, you don't actually exist. Like, your idea that you exist is just this thing in your, that your brain made up. And so I, I just think it's, just don't worry about it. You don't know who you are. You don't know who you're going to be. You don't know if you're lovable or unlovable. You don't know if, you know, getting a six pack will make you lovable. Like, it's, you don't know any of this stuff. So why worry about it? Just do good things and be a good person. And like, that's it, you know, try not to think past that. Cause I think it's the more we think past that, the, the more trouble we can get into. Yeah, I, I agree with that, but I think that's easier said than done. <laughs> totally, <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. It's not easy at all. Yeah. So you talk about, you call it Newton's laws of emotions in your book. Mm-hmm. 
Can you yeah. go through what those are? I, I don't want to like reveal too much of your book because I want people to go read it. But I feel like these are all like good teasers because they're going to have to dig deeper to learn more. Sure. I've been obsessed with Newton for a while. You know, aside from being like one of the smartest dudes ever, Newton's super fascinating because he had such he had like a, a really traumatic life. Like he was abandoned as a kid and he suffered tons of abuse and violence growing up. And uh, he was just kind of this like loner outcast who was miserable and hated people <laughs> pretty much his entire life. And so I, I've always wanted to write about him and kind of use him as an idea. And, I, and it's funny because I've also recognized for a long time that Newton's laws of physics make really good analogies for emotions, you know? So it's like, your emotion will stay your emotion until an experience acts against it. Or for every action, there's an equal and opposite emotional reaction. Like, I always just thought that was so cool and fun. And so I, I wrote a whole chapter, and it's kind of like it's part Newton biography and then part Newton's laws of emotion. And so there's we've got the three laws of emotion. Every action creates an equal and opposite reaction. Your identity is proportional to your emotions over time, and then uh, your identity will continue to be your identity until a new and contrary experience acts against it. And then I have a, the law of emotional gravitation, which is that equal and like identities attract one another. And yeah, it's just, I don't know. I had so much fun with that chapter, and it was funny because uh, the original version was like twice as long, and I showed it to my editor, and he thought it was fucking terrible. He was like, dude, just stop. <laughs> He's like, stop. I can't take it anymore. And I was like, no, no, this is, this is my baby. And so I, I actually had to hack. I mean, he was right. It was kind of terrible, but I had to hack a lot of it out. So I chopped about half of it, reworked it, showed it to my wife. She kind of helped me like clarify some of the ideas. And, and now it's like actually one of my favorite things that I've written. So it's super fun. If you're nerdy like me, it's super fun. <laughs> I liked it because I'm a super math nerd, like recovering engineer. So I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yes, yeah, so I want to actually ask about how your identity has shifted because we, you're just talking about that and it probably resonates on that level. So over time, like it's normal for our identity to shift, but some people have a really hard time with that. Yeah. One thing I talk about a lot is that anytime your identity shifts, there's actually a little bit of grieving that happens for your past identity. And I think that's something that goes under discussed, you know, like everybody wants to change. Everybody wants to like change themselves or whatever, but it's like, you don't realize that when you change, you, you're going to, it feels like you lost a friend. It's really weird. You know, it's even though I would never go back to my digital nomad, uh, blogging days, you know, like back in like, 2012 when I was just my biggest concerns were like drinking and well just drinking and girls <laughs> you know it's like I, I kind of miss that guy like it, there's a sadness to knowing that that part of your life is never going to come back and so for me it's been really interesting especially with the success of subtle art I think what people don't realize too is that you don't just grieve the loss of an identity you you enjoyed like you you don't just grieve when things get worse, you also grieve when things get better, you know, like it's the success of subtle art really messed with me because all of a sudden, I mean, I, I achieved all these goals and dreams that I had, which was incredible. But then at the same time, it's like, you don't ever get to be that guy anymore. You don't ever get to be the underdog anymore. And you don't ever get to dream, like have those dreams anymore. 
And that it's really strange because that was actually kind of one of the motivations for the, this book about hope was that I realized like one of the ways you can destroy your your hope is by getting exactly what you wanted. Like you just don't know what to do. It's like it's like a dog chasing cars. Like if you catch it, like it doesn't know what to do with it. So it's been an interesting few years. And as with all of my writing, this book was very much about me. I, I always call it doing therapy in public because <laughs> <laughs> it's everything I write. Basically, it's the crap that I'm going through at the moment. And so, yeah, that's why so much of this book is about identity and hope and dreams and what we ha- needing something to look forward to in life and how those visions get complicated by technology and money and, and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I think it's it's really honest and also really hard to talk about how once you've achieved a certain level of success, you kind of feel almost a depression or a letdown because you work so hard to get to that point. And I've experienced this too. And you get there and you're like, well, I've achieved everything that I ever imagined. So now what am I supposed to do? And like, you don't want to talk about it because then you look like this like <laughs> asshole. People are like, oh, yeah. poor you. But yeah. it's hard because you're like, well, where do I go from here? And then am I ever going to feel that feeling again? And like, I'm sure it's it's been hard writing another book because you want it to have the same or better success as the book before, but you don't really know what's going to happen. So like, how do you how do you feel about that? Yeah, it, it really messed with my head. I would say there was like six months of writing that just went nowhere because it was messing with my head so much. One a way I described it to my friend once was that like throughout your career, especially when you have like an internet business, like every year you want the numbers to be higher than the year before. You want you want it to be more traffic, more readers, more money. And you know, for like 10 years it was every year was bigger than the year before. And it's subtle art was successful so successful that it put the numbers so high that it's like, well, shit, there, <laughs> there's no way I'm ever going to top that. Like it's, and I, 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 you know, in case people listening to this, like think I'm being facetious, like it really, it's it, not to toot my own horn, but it, it's the book sold almost 8 million copies worldwide. It's been wow. number one in 13 countries, like a book. It was the n- number one best-selling book in, of 2018, I think in like eight different countries, like a book like this level of success in publishing, it, it's like a once a decade thing. And, um, which is fantastic, you know, totally grateful hashtag blessed. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, it's like when you sit down to write the next one, you know, your my mind just has 10 years of programming of like, all right, how do we get that number to go up? And it's like, dude, it's not going to go up. Like, and eventually I got to the point where it was like, you know, the only way I'm going to keep my sanity is by just saying fuck the numbers and getting back to a point where it's like write a book that you'll love, that is an honest representation of you and where you're coming from. Basically write a book the question I ask myself is like, if this book sold 10 copies, you know, would you still be proud of it? And, and I use that as kind of like my guiding light. And that, that got me through it. It's like, you know, and I, and it's funny now that it's about to come out, people keep asking, are you nervous? Are you nervous? And I'm like, actually, like, I'm not nervous at all because I think it's a better book. I think it's smarter. It's more thoughtful and it's, 
certainly going to sell fewer copies. And I'm okay with all of that. So I'm in a good spot. But yeah, it was pretty rough. It was weird. And yeah. you're totally right too. You can't complain about it because people think you're a dick. <laughs> <laughs> but like it really does go back to like that transactional thing with hope and like the numbers and the like defining success like oh like how do i define if this book is successful or not and it's putting into practice all the things that you talk about with core values and hope and absolutely it's like the perfect way to to reinforce all of your i don't know what the right word is self self helpedness (laughs) yes i (laughs) sound smart (laughs) (laughs) well it's it's like i said it's i'm answering my own problem you know it's um i wrote what i needed to hear basically. And the same was true with subtle art. Subtle art was different because there was no expectation on me. So it was easy to go into subtle art being like, all right, dude, just write the shit you want to hear. And then it just blew up. You know, I had no idea that was going to happen. But with this one, it was really hard to get back to that, to just get back to that place of like, you know, do your therapy. Yeah. Like, why am I doing this? And this is, I got to focus on why I'm doing this, not how successful it's going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So the last element I wanted to talk about, which you actually mentioned in both of your books, is talking about pain and how like pain is a constant and we should be happy about pain and embrace pain mm-hmm. because it teaches us what's important. So like how is that manifested in your life and how can people learn to do that for themselves? I think pain is a, uh, you know, pain tolerance, I think is it's like an acquired, it's like a muscle, you know, if you don't exercise it, you lose it. One of the things I talk about in this book is that if you avoid pain, not only does it not really work, but it makes you, it actually makes you more sensitive to pain rather than less sensitive. Whereas if you lean into the pain, it makes you less sensitive to it. It makes you more disciplined, makes you more resilient. This is something, and it's interesting because as an athlete, I, I know you understand this. And it's something that when I talk to fitness people and athletes, it's like they resonate so much with this part. And then like non fitness people and athletes, they're like, well, that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> you know? and, I'm, and I'm like, well, yeah, that's the whole point. But it, it's, I think it's easy to kind of see that how that affects us physically. You know, if you don't go to the gym, your body gets weaker. And if you do go to the gym, it's like the amount of pain you experience, it actually makes you stronger. But what people don't realize is that's true for your mind as well. So say having difficult conversations with people you care about, The more you avoid them, the more sensitive and unable you're going to be to handle them when they do happen. And the more you lean into them, the better you're going to get at them. And and actually, the more comfortable you're going to get at them. Same thing with work ethic. I mean, the examples just go on and on. And one of the, the issues that I talk about in the book is that I fear that our culture is so driven by seeking pleasure and seeking satisfaction that we're losing our resilience as a culture. We're losing our our patience and our discipline as a culture. Yeah, and like anything that we're most proud of, we probably experience some degree of pain to get there, which is, I always think about this as like so unfair in some ways, like as an athlete, for sure, like you have to suffer in your workouts to get faster. And if you think about your accomplishments, like in normal life, it's like the things you had to work the hardest for are the things that you're most proud of. And yep. I, I don't really know why that is, though. <laughs> it's like, why why can't I just be happy with the easy things? 
Yeah, well, because you gave up something. You know, it's the same way people are like proud of their scars. You know, it's yeah. like, oh yeah, yeah, check this one out. And because uh, you gave up something, I don't know. It, it gives us a sense that we did something valuable with our life. If if you've bled for something, and, and again, it it doesn't have to be a sport necessarily. It could be, you know, raising kids. I think is the perfect example for this because it's it's so funny, like. When psychologists started studying happiness, one of the first things that they found was that parents of young children are significantly less happy than the rest of the population. And it was it was one of those things they got there's all these clickbait headlines like children make you miserable and all this stuff. <laughs> and it's funny because the psychologists were like, well, according to our research, you know, people shouldn't have children. And uh, you know, but it's it's so backwards, like it's so stupid. It's like of course, children having kids it drives you fucking crazy. Like there, it is absolutely like the most difficult thing you'll ever do is like raising a kid. But that's part of what makes it so special. Like it is, you give so much of your life to something. That's what creates that sense of meaning. And so, if if you try to make everything easy, if you try to make everything feel good, you rob people of that that opportunity to have something meaningful. And speaking of meaningful things, like you do so much, like you have courses, you have a podcast where you read your articles, which I think is awesome because I, I'm not good at sitting still. So I like listening and I'm really thankful that you now have that podcast <laughs> and like all your writing and your speaking, like how do you maintain that like balance in your life where, cause it, cause there's, there's the pursuit of more. There's always, you could always be doing more. So how do you feel com like sure. happy with the amount that you're doing? You know what's funny is is what I realized is starting your own business, it's like one of the most work-intensive things you can ever do. Like it's just you work stupid hours and it's really stressful and there's like no security or certainty. And so I did that for years and years and years. And then once things kind of started, like I got the ball rolling, I guess you could say, you know, I started hiring people and backing off a little bit. My life kind of calmed down. And then subtle art blew up and I like it was so funny because as soon as soon as it took off and I I was like, oh, my God, I'm making a shitload of money. The first thing I did is I was like, I'm going to sit around and play video games for, for a month. <laughs> and that's exactly <laughs> what I it's exactly what I did. And it was funny because it was just so unsatisfying. Like I was like one of my biggest lessons from this whole experience is like I enjoy having stuff to do. Like I need a little bit of stress in my life. Like it gets me up earlier, it gets me to bed earlier, it focuses my mind. And so it was funny coming out of that experience, you know, because a lot of the book came out into 2016 and a lot of 2017, I just kind of sat around being like, all right, now what? Took a lot of trips with the wife, played a lot of video games. And then I went to my agent and I was just like, load me up, like just find me a bunch of stuff. And I started doing it and it, it felt great. Like it just, it makes me happy working a lot. So for me, it's not even a question now. I work from home, so I get to see my wife a bunch and, you know, but it, it's, I, I guess the discovery was, is that the balance for me is maybe not so balanced. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way. Like when I go on vacation, my husband's like, no computer, no phone. And I just, <laughs> I'm, I feel like anxious. Like, what am I supposed to do with myself? Like, I'm just supposed to sit here or just like go walk around. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Who does that? Who would go see stuff? <laughs> I, 
I found that like there's a sweet spot for that of like 48 to 72 hours is like really regenerative. But then as soon as that like fourth day hits, I'm like, okay, I want to go home and work. Yeah. <laughs> My wife's like, really? Already? Okay. So you have a, a speaking tour I saw associated with your new book. And I live four hours away from Vancouver, so I'm hoping I can make it to the Vancouver one. But like, awesome. where can people find all this stuff? How can people like get into the Mark Manson world? Best place to start is markmanson.net. It's my website. Got hundreds of articles there. Check out the books. And then the speaking tour will be happening end of May and early June. I think right now we've got nine or 10 cities lined up. There'll probably be a couple more added to the schedule. Just going to come around, give a talk, sign books, meet people. It'll be tons of fun. That can be found at markmanson.net slash book dash tour. So check that out as well. And yeah, I'll have a busy summer. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It was really fun chatting with you. Yeah, thanks, Sonia. Mark is such a rad guy. I've listened to him on other podcasts and he just shows up the same for everybody. And he is so successful and has done so much, but it doesn't look like it's gone to his head. He just is a really awesome guy. Thank you again to those of you who are supporting my work on Patreon financially. It makes a really big difference and it does cost money to put on this show and I am happy, happy, happy to do it. But any dollars you can kick in really help the show keep going. I also hope that you've been enjoying the Monday edition of my show, the 5-Minute Crush It Mondays. I've only been doing it for the last two weeks so far, but I've been getting some good feedback and it just gives a contemplation, an idea or a habit to set you up for the week so that you can have uh, your week off to a good start. Thanks again for coming back each week and listening to all of our amazing guests, wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.